Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Today is Horticulture Day. I'm Charity Nebbe. Birds are fun to watch and listen to, and they are also an important part of our ecosystem. Gardeners, homeowners, and landscapers can do a lot to attract and support birds. Here to tell us how, Adam Jenke, Associate Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management at Iowa State University and ISU Extension Wildlife Specialist. Hello, Adam. Good morning, Charity. Thank you so much for being here. And, of course, it's really easy to take birds for granted. We see them all the time. We hear them all the time. They've always been there. But... There are a lot of bird species that are in decline, aren't there? Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's what I thought when you said they've always been there. Is like we shouldn't, of course, be complacent in taking that for granted because, you know, their survival is not necessarily assured. And we have history to tell us about scenarios where, you know, once really common birds became, well, of course, in some rare cases extinct. But uh, like the case of the bald eagle became very rare very quickly with the use of DDT in the mid 20th century. And then fortunately we turned that around and today they're ubiquitous. So uh, that is the case with birds um, from a bunch of different uh, guilds. Some are thriving. Uh, namely right now we think sort of water birds and wetland birds are doing quite well in North America. And then some are really struggling like the case with grassland birds that have declined 53% since uh, the 1970s. So some birds are really struggling and all birds could certainly use our help. Yeah, there was a the 2022 U.S. State of Birds report that came out just about a month ago said that more than half of all bird species in the United States are declining right now. So that that seems like obviously, you know, there are some specific bird species that are in trouble, but it feels like a much bigger problem overall. Yeah, it is. And, and you know, we see that with insects as well. And there are these sort of signals uh, across the globe about biodiversity declines that we get worried about. And um, we, we, when we look to solutions, of course, there's no one silver bullet, but a commonality across wildlife species and wildlife uh, population declines is that they just need places to live. And they, so that means they need habitat. And so that's why it is that um, wildlife professionals like me are always sort of uh, banging on the tables to get people to think about where we can have wildlife habitat in and around the places where we live and work and uh, play uh, to try to have uh, to make sure these birds or other wildlife species are around for future generations. All right. Well, let's talk about building that habitat around our homes. Because again, I think it's so easy to take birds for granted. It's easy to also say, hey, birds love trees and bushes. (laughs) They're going to like whatever I plant, right? Well, and that is true. That's one of the funny things about wildlife is you basically can't do anything without impacting, positively impacting some species of wildlife. The extreme example of this I always like to point to is killdeer, which will be a familiar bird uh, to many people in agricultural landscapes. They they yell their name, killdeer, killdeer, killdeer in flight, and uh, they build their nests on gravel roads. And so if we were to help the killdeer, we would just build more gravel roads. And that's sort of an extreme, but I always like to point out that when we talk about wildlife habitat, it could be anything from a gravel road to what well, we tend to think more of wildlife habitat, which is kind of diverse native ecosystems like wetlands, forests, uh, and prairies that we have in Iowa. And in many cases, especially in urban areas or in yards, what I always just say is we want to mimic those places. We don't necessarily need 
you know, our backyard to go back to the nature, to go totally wild. But what you can do is understand what species of wildlife that you really like and you want to attract to your yard need from their sort of native ecosystems or the places where they live in the wild, say, uh, and sort of do some work to try to mimic those things in your own backyard, uh, in landscaping or, or with the selection of, of uh, plants, or even in some cases like artificial structures like birdhouses, uh, mimicking nature to try to attract those species of wildlife to places where we live. We see different bird species at different times of year because of their patterns of living, but also bird species have different needs at different times of year. So when we think about planting in the landscape, we probably think need to think about multiple different needs. So we should probably start at the beginning with nesting. How do we want to think about providing support for birds during the nesting season? Yes. Um, so I think there was a, a chicken and the egg joke here, Charity. I was trying to think <laughs> of it. I thought, well, yeah, we'll start at the beginning with that egg. So uh, where do birds place their, their eggs? Of course, uh, there's a you know, birds place their eggs everywhere, but we can make some generalizations. Most of our city birds tend to nest, um, you know, build, build nest structures up in woody vegetation primarily. That's a good place for bird nests, at least in our city environments. And so, um, sometimes what we talk about with attracting nesting birds is to think about woody plants that have complex horizontal branching structure, uh, that's just basically flat places for birds to build nests on. Uh, the classic example for me of this is like a hawthorn tree. I think hawthorns are just this beautiful sort of underlooked, uh, overlo- overlooked uh, native tree, a small tree. And uh, they have a lot of complex horizontal branches. And that just means lots of places for birds like cardinals and robins to sort of settle one of their nests uh, into that tree. Um, of course, Further up into the canopy, birds will nest, you know, throughout all the way up to the tree tops. But another thing to think about for good places for bird nests is actually dead branches or even dead trees um, where woodpeckers can excavate cavities uh, for their own use. And then lots of other species of birds and other animals will come in and use them after the woodpeckers are done. Um, And so sometimes in urban places, as long as it's safe, not over, you know, over the house or over a sidewalk or something, it can be really uh, good for wildlife to leave dead branches or even dead standing trees for wildlife habitat as well. And then that certainly goes against the instinct of a lot of people, especially in urban areas. So you could be doing something good by doing a little bit less in your environment. Um, You mentioned uh, briefly, you mentioned native species. And of course, we're trying to support our native bird populations. Is it important that we are planting native species in our landscape to support these birds? Yeah, that's a great question. So actually, and it's a perfect transition from the placement of the nest to the survival of the young. And so the placement of the nest, you heard me talking about structure, dead stuff, horizontal branching, you know, places to hide a nest. And and so the species of tree or the species of shrub that the bird's placing that, that nest in is really inconsequential for the placement, the structural uh, consideration. But baby birds have to feed, of course. And baby birds, uh, of course, don't get milk from their mothers like mammals do. So they need to find their, their nitrogen or their protein uh, from the environment. And the way most birds do that is by feeding their young lots of insects and even more specifically, feeding their young lots of caterpillars. 
And so there's, you know, thousands of species of moths and hundreds of species of butterflies or over a hundred species of butterflies found in Iowa. They all, of course, have a caterpillar and those caterpillars uh, are the basis on which baby birds are grown in Iowa. And those moths and butterflies need primarily native plants to raise their young. And so that's the connection between native plants and birds is that native plants foster a lot more insects that can be the really important, you know, meet the really uh, strict dietary needs of an actively growing bird. And so native plants are really consequential for that. And specifically native woody plants, um, lots of butterflies and moths are adapted to a relatively small number of native uh, woody plants that we find in Iowa. And if they don't have those native woody plants on which to lay their eggs and grow their caterpillars, then they won't be able to reproduce. And so that's sort of the, the bird butterfly uh, native plant connection is, is, uh, goes in that direction. Right. Well, and so many people are excited about planting for pollinators now. This is another way to think about planting for pollinators. That's absolutely right. Um, in, in woody plants, of course, often flower as well, and they're really important nectar resources. We think especially early in the year, lots of woody plants bloom early before growing those uh, fruits that will come on later in the year. Uh, and that can be a really important nectar source. And then this host plant um, equation that's important for birds is really um, important to consider for insects and, and other wildlife species as well. All right. And you already said that you thought that the, the hawthorn tree is overlooked. Are there other native, particularly shrubs, that we should think about putting in our landscape? Because I know a lot of people get attracted to shrubs that are not native because they're showy. Are there some native yeah. shrubs that we should be thinking about? Yeah. Well, um, yes, of course there are. There's lots of native species of shrubs. Um, a couple that come to mind. One, anything in the cherry or plum family, which is the scientific genus Prunus, uh, they have, they, they sort of disproportionately host high densities of uh, moth and butterfly uh, caterpillars. And so they're one of these, like, we call them keystone, keystone genera uh, that have really attracted a high density of uh, our native moth and butterfly species. And so um, things like American plum and then a, a bunch of different um, shrubby cherry species like sand cherry. And uh, we could bring Aaron in to give us some more specifics in a bit. But anything in that prunus genus is a really good choice. Um, and then other native shrubs that look good in landscapes, dogwoods are great. I don't know specifically about uh, dogwoods and, and butterflies and moths, but they can be really uh, good fruit late in the year uh, for migrating birds. They, many migratory uh, songbirds fuel their migration on fruits and dogwoods produce a really nice fruit that's available uh, during that time of the year. Um, anything in the um, viburnum family can be both beautiful, like um, uh, nanny berry uh, can be both be beautiful and produce that fruit and provide really good structure. So lots of native shrub uh, species available um, for for birds, and you just kind of have to figure out what what matches uh, the soils and conditions of the site, and what the sort of aesthetics that you want to go for are. Now, I'm only going to give you 30 seconds right now to answer this question. A lot of people love to put up birdhouses to support their favorite bird species. How do you feel about birdhouses? Oh, I think they're great. Um, you know, different species of birds benefit. Um, 
there's a lot of consideration that should be given to the size of the hole. Um, all those birds are pretty adapted to a specific size of hole. And so you can find great resources from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology all about different species that like different sizes of holes and can kind of inform your approach for uh, putting the right birdhouse out there. Adam Jenke, Associate Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management in Iowa State University, Extension Wildlife Specialist. For more gardening information and tips, please subscribe to our Garden Variety newsletter. You can find out more at iowapublicradio.org slash garden. I'm Charity Nebbe. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. It's Horticulture Day today. Today we're branching out a little bit with Adam Jenke here, Associate Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management and ISU Extension Wildlife Specialist. And Aaron Style is also here, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist. Hello, Aaron. Good morning. Thank you both for being here. And of course, you can join the conversation with your questions. 866-780-9100. 866-780-9100. You can also send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And of course, you can ask questions about supporting wildlife habitat in your landscape. You can also ask questions about all of the plants and trees in your life. 866-780-9100. And Aaron, this time of year, the temperature keeps going, you know, above freezing and then below freezing for a couple of days and then above freezing again. We have talked a lot, in the, especially in the, the late months of, of summer and early fall, about making sure that we're watering the newer plants in our landscape, particularly shrubs and trees, until the ground is frozen. What's the rule of thumb for this time of year when it's all over the place? <laughs> yeah. Uh, for most of us, you know, even though the temperature kind of goes up and down like that, the soil um, doesn't necessarily freeze like that. So it's much more tempered. Um, I think I, you know, I forgot to check this morning. I know last week, uh, still a good chunk of the state, the soil isn't frozen yet. So um, it's getting close. Um, a lot of us at this time of year, just practically, it's pretty difficult to do it because, uh, you know, we put the hose wanna, away. <laughs> yeah, you put the hose away. You don't want to get the hose out. Right. Uh, you don't want to turn on the outdoor spigot or you've already had that, you know, kind of turned off for the season. Uh, most of the trees were probably at about the point where it's OK, um, unless you had a deficit going in and and want to try to make that up. If you've been doing a good job most of the fall, you're, we're probably at the point where you can be done at least for this season. 
All right. Good. That's very good news. But it's it's mm-hmm. just so funny on a day when it's going to be over 50 degrees again after yeah. being so very cold. All right. <laughs> 866-780-9100 is the number to call. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And Lynn has a question for you, Erin. She says, what is causing the white buzz on my indoor rosemary plants? So if the white fuzz is down kind of like where leaves attach or on the underside of leaves or like in the branch angles, it is very likely mealybug, which is a really common indoor plant pest and a very difficult one to get rid of. Um, they sap, uh, they're sap suckers. Um, they kind of set up shop and that cottony covering that's over them makes the use of any kind of material that you might use, whether it's an insecticide or something a little bit friendlier to humans, at least like insecticidal soap or something like that makes it hard for the, uh, to get contact. Um, if the plant's not too big, you can go through and actually physically remove them. Um, either with your thumbnail or a Q-tip, an alcohol-dipped Q-tip can be really nice for that because that can kind of help uh, cut through that and, and hopefully um, break the, the, the skin, if you will, of the insect and hopefully kill it. Um, but you will want to try to get it under control as quickly as possible because they can very quickly um, explode into these crazy populations. And rosemary is relatively prone, especially when we bring it in from outside uh, to mealybug. Um, so... Uh, my guess, especially if you are noticing some stickiness on the pot, lower leaves, the table or floor underneath it, it's almost certainly mealybug, and uh, you'll want to try to address it as soon as possible. Okay. Common common problem? It is a very common problem. It's one of those things that anybody who has indoor plants will encounter at some point, um, and it is, it is difficult to get rid of. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. Email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And uh, Jesse in Waterloo wants to know, is it too late to apply the second fall treatment to fight Creeping Charlie? Or will mm. I be wasting this magic potion if I apply it today? <laughs> it's pretty late. Um, most of that stuff is, is uh, most of those plants are, are fairly dormant at this point. Um, so it is getting pretty late. Usually we want to get that down by early to mid-November. Um, and we're, of course, in early December at this point. So it's probably not going to do as much good. The other problem, of course, is that spring applications of herbicide to control Creeping Charlie are not very effective either because it grows like gangbusters in the spring and it's hard to keep up with it. So you could try it in the spring. It might kind of set it back a little bit. But those fall applications, one in late September, the other one in early November, are, or mid-October, as, as late as mid-October, and then the other one in early November are, are um, the ideal time. 866-780-9100. We've got another email question here. Talk of Iowa at iowapublicradio.org from Joyce. This year, I used my mower to mulch my leaves. I want to put the shredded leaves onto my flower beds. Should I do that now or should I wait until the ground is frozen? Um, the ground is nearly frozen for many of us, so now would be okay. The big thing is we don't want the mulch to go down too early because it can slow the plant's process of going dormant, which exposes it to more potential of winter damage uh, because it's not fully dormant when things start getting really cold. Most plants are 
pretty much there at this point, um, even with the kind of fluctuating temperatures. So uh, you can put it down. I wouldn't concentrate shredded leaves over the crown of the plant, but kind of around the immediate kind of rooting area um, could be beneficial. When you use really fine material like shredded up leaves, it can really compact over the winter and cause some sh uh, smothering, um, which could be problematic. It's one of the reasons why we always recommend straw as a mulching material because it's very uh, loose and less likely to compact. Um, but you can use that. Of course, it's a great soil amendment too. So um, even if you don't use it to cover the crown of the perennial or other plant, putting it in the garden bed um, is a great way to use it. All right, 866-780-9100. And Adam, I want to go back to planting habitat around our homes. I mean, we really focused on planting habitat to support bird species. I suspect that if we plant habitat for birds, we're also supporting other wildlife, um, which I consider to be a great thing. There can be some complications with that, though, for some people, right? Yeah, this is like a, a common question that, you know, I like the butterflies and the birds, but how do I keep the snakes and the raccoons or whatever away? And uh, there are there are techniques to do that. Um, you know, um, the the easiest thing is to just sort of celebrate wildlife diversity and like sort of embrace embrace that diversity in your yard. But if that if that's too much and you really don't want to see snakes or you really don't want to see you know uh, cottontails or something like that, then you can think primarily about like the density of features in the landscape, like, uh, where people see, you know, tend to see a lot of snakes would be when there's like a lot of dense cover, um, or, um, abandoned, like sort of material that snakes can crawl up underneath or spend their day in, or, uh, same with cottontail rabbits. They'll really take advantage of like brush piles or dense, uh, ground level vegetation. So if you're, if that is not your thing and you don't want to entice those animals, then you can always, um, you know, kind of look up, like try to plant native trees or plant small statured trees like serviceberry or, um, there, well, there'd be a whole diversity of, of small statured trees we could potentially choose from, uh, that would be less likely to attract things that you're maybe less interested in. All right. So, but you know, what you're saying too is embr embracing that oh, diversity yeah. I, is, a, is a good I, idea. I, you know, I know a lot of people love to feed birds and then spend a lot of time and energy trying to keep squirrels from eating their bird seed, which I, I understand because squirrels can eat a whole lot of bird seed. But I mean, do you have advice for how, how to embrace that? Squirrels can be fun to watch. Oh yeah. Well, I always wonder if I'm not the best ambassador for this because I have this whole like guilty or innocent until proven guilty attitude towards like everything in my yard and at my home. So like I let you may weeds be the grow best the ambassador for <laughs> oh, this. Oh okay, time. okay. Well, here then think <laughs> like this. I let weeds grow out of cracks. Uh, I I really do have this sort of I sort of just embrace the diversity sort of philosophy. Um, now, so in that and that applies to squirrels. That applies to cottontails and deer and everything else now it's not lost on me that like sometimes you know one species of wildlife can infringe on our goals for other species of wildlife like deer are a great example of this like deer eat woody plants all winter long uh, primarily they're browsers and so they can really you know do some damage to woody vegetation that we want to grow for uh, nesting habitat for birds in 30 years and so um, in those cases, uh, the way to sort of coexist, 
uh, with those species of wildlife is to have a good defense. Uh, so I spend a lot of time at my house putting shrubs or putting cages around all of my shrubs that I want to protect. Um, you know, thinking about uh, species that I'll plant that maybe just um, are more compatible with my surroundings. I do have a lot of deer in my neighborhood, and so I'm not going to plant uh, you, for example, in my front yard because I just will never win that battle. Even though you is a beautiful native woody plant, uh, the deer just like to eat it too much, and they will come right up to the window to do it. I've seen them do it at my house. And so I just don't have it in my front yard. Instead, I actually have you in my backyard where it's fenced off. And so those kind of things um, are another really good way to coexist with wildlife in your landscape is just to have realistic expectations, to sort of evaluate your expectations and goals and and adjust them to meet the reality of your situation, uh, and then uh, have a good defense, protect particularly early life phases of, of woody plants so that they can get uh, their root system established and get growing uh, before the rabbits or squirrel or rabbits or deer do too much damage. And this time of year, it's easy to get complacent. You're like, oh, I, you know, there hasn't yeah. been any rabbit or squirrel or uh, deer damage yet, but that is that is coming our it's way. It's coming. It's coming. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> I had a I had uh, with the deer. They rubbed my young trees. You yeah. know, the bucks with their antlers and. And, you know, I love, I love wildlife and all this stuff, but sometimes when they do that, I just think, do you have to, did you have to rub my beautiful young trees? So, uh, just a reminder that you've got to think about those things and, um, you know, those are sort of natural processes and we just have to have a good defense. That's the best offense, uh, so that, uh, they don't do too much harm and, uh, hurt all the work that we've put into the landscape. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. We've got a couple of lines open for you right now. 866-780-9100. You can also send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And we have Caitlin, a former Iowan, now on the line from Boston. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Charity. How are you? It's wonderful to hear from you, Caitlin Harrop, a former producer of uh, IPR talk shows with a legitimate houseplant question. So I, I'll let you get to it. What's your question, Caitlin? Yes, it's, it's a real question. I have a tropical succulent um, indoor bush plant, and it seems to be growing what looks like small mushrooms along the soil line. And it's very concerning, and I'm wondering what I should do. Yeah, uh, sometimes we'll see this in in house plants. Sometimes they're like a yellowish color. Sometimes they're kind of more of a creamy color. These are like little mushrooms. Yeah, it's it's just an indication, you know, that the soil is a living thing. There are roots in that soil. The soil is made up typically. Uh, potting soil is made up of things like sphagnum moss or coconut uh, husk, uh, that kind of stuff. All of those things break down, and sometimes. You'll have fungi um, kind of show themselves uh, by producing a mushroom um, uh, in in the in the container. So there's not there isn't really anything you need to do. If you don't like them, you can just remove them. Uh, cutting off a mushroom is equivalent to picking a flower um, in many ways because the mushroom is the reproductive structure for that fungus that is actually incorporated within the soil as like all these kind of hair or root like structures. So um, you're not going to get rid of the fungus, nor do you need to. Um, and if the mushrooms bother you, you can just kind of pluck them when you see them and, and remove them. Whatever they're uh, decomposing, once that is gone, um, maybe a, a few roots of that plant died or um, something like that. Once that material is gone, the mushrooms will stop popping up. 
Oh, that's the best news ever. Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for calling. It made my day to hear from you. <laughs> you can you can also make our day by calling 866-780-9100. You don't have to be a long lost friend. But Marsha is on the line next in Fairfield. Hi, Marsha. Hi there. Hi, what's your question? Okay, my question is this. I've been getting all these emails and texts that are talking about, you know, of course they're trying to save the bees so that we can save the planet. And I'm hearing that queen bees overnight under your leaves on your lawn and that not only you're not supposed to mulch in the fall, but you're not even supposed to rake. You're supposed to wait until spring and they've uh, come out of however they're overwintering and then do it. All right. So which Aaron or Adam, which one of you wants to take that one? Well, we just we just ex- exchanged uh, facial gestures and I'm going to start. Okay. <laughs> Remember, the guy that lets everything go uh, is going to go first and then Aaron will tell you right. what the consequences are. Um, it is true. So there's lots of bee species in Iowa. There are over, I think, over 300 species of bees in Iowa. And so they all have sort of different life histories. Some of them live in the ground some of them live up in up in trees and some of them um a lot of them overwinter in uh decaying or dead wood uh and then some of some of them uh in other insects also complete aspects of their life history overwintering uh in leaf litter and so it is true that uh leaf litter is of course uh, a resource that many animals uh, take advantage of you know Aaron was just talking about how it can get really compact and it can you know suppress the growth of plants and all this stuff like well that's a hospitable environment if you're looking for a place that is sort of um, uh, a way to survive the winter and so it is true that some insects do that and so um, if you can leave uh, if you have a place in your yard where you can leave leaf litter that is great for some species of insects and will um, have sort of um, uh, some positive ecological benefits and uh, is a way to just sort of like put fewer resources into uh, this, the uh, like, like carbon, just burning less carbon and other things into the management of our yard, just leaving things sort of natural. So that's great. But what I think Aaron would tell you, and I'm looking at him now across <laughs> the table is like, well, don't expect to have like a flourishing yard if you leave a bunch of oak litter all winter <laughs> just carpeted underneath the the snow. Yeah. And so so what I always just say here is like it just depends on your goals and if you have a portion of your yard that you want to sort of start to reimagine an alternative use for, uh leaving leaves there is a great way to start. Um and so I have this whole one third of my entire yard I've completely stopped mowing. And I'm just sort of like shepherding along uh, the the plants that are colonizing it. And leaf litter is part of, uh, you know, the environment that I'm trying to foster over there. Um, but I'm not going to do that where I want to have a badminton game in June. Like, because I'm not going to have good turf grass where I leave the leaves. So it uh, just sort of depends on your goals, uh, having realistic expectations, knowing of the consequences. And yeah, if you have a place where you can spare uh, picking up the leaves, then do it and wildlife will certainly appreciate it. Marsha, thank you so much for the call. We are going to have to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. You can join the conversation with your questions, 866-780-9100. 
866-780-9100 or send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. With me, Adam Jenke, Associate Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management at Iowa State University and Aaron Style, ISU Extension Horticulture Specialist. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. It's Horticulture Day today, and you are welcome to join the conversation with your questions about plants, trees, or, yeah, today, wildlife and wildlife habitat as well. Aaron Style is here, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist. Adam Jenke is also here, Associate Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management at ISU and ISU Extension Wildlife Specialist. The number again, 866-780-9100. You can also Send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And suddenly, Adam, all the questions are for you. So next up, Greg in Norwalk. Hi, Greg. Hi. Hi. What's your question? Um, I live on an acreage. I have about a quarter acre of land that sits is isolated. And I'm wondering, what could I put in that quarter acre to for birds and just kind of wildlife. I don't want to do anything to it. I just want to plant something there and then leave it alone. I've got other areas that I manage, but uh, this I don't want to. It's hard to get to. Sure. Yeah. So, Greg, what is the quarter acre in right now? What's growing there? Uh, it actually probably was a cornfield 15, 20 years ago, but it, it sits, it, it's in grass. And okay. nothing over the, I've lived here for 15 years and it just grows up in grass and, and I just thought it'd be nice to have some shrubs or something back there. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, just idling, uh, you know, just sort of abandoning an area and allowing things to grow up is, is a strategy that, you know, can be good for wildlife. What will happen is that the birds will actually plant the shrubs for you because they'll fly them in and their gut, right. uh, and then deposit them right. there, um, and so if it's not, is it mowed or do you, do you mow it right now or? No, I can't. I know. No, yeah. I don't mow it. No, I don't yeah. think anybody's mowing it for several years. And there are some trees that have came up in it Yeah. and some shrubs, but there's still an area that's kind of, I'm looking at it right now. There's nothing growing there except grass. Yeah. And I don't so, know. I'm not real sure of the reason for that, but, uh. I just like to find out maybe some shrubs or something to put back there. Like I say, I don't want to maintenance. It's hard to get to. Yeah. And uh, I just was wondering about that. Yeah. So a couple of I thoughts. One, you could plant some things for sure. Uh, the State Forest Nursery has, uh, you know, bundles of native shrubs and trees that are available okay. in, in sizes down to 25. The challenge there would be having sort of realistic expectations because oftentimes those things do need some help getting established with watering or or weed suppression um the other thing is is like i said just sort of letting natural plants colonize normally with time we'll see those things start to come in a risk with that is that what tends to colonize are what we call invasive species so species that are really aggressive and can sort of just take over and a risk in a site like that might be that 
it might become exclusively eastern red cedar or it might become exclusively um, uh, exotic honeysuckle in a few years. And so what I would say of a place like this, you could get a couple of seedlings from the state forest nursery. They're not very expensive. And you could spend a day out there in the spring planting them and then see what happens. And then the other option would be to just sort of shepherd it along uh, trying to you know, if, if cedars get too aggressive, maybe occasionally going in there and removing a few, we always say all things in moderation. Uh, and so removing a few cedars and allowing other plants to come in. So nature, just sort of abandoning it, abandoning it, not mowing it, seeing what happens is a really good strategy. And some species of wildlife would definitely benefit from that. I've got another area to the South of me that we've done that. And it seems to have come in overgrown with a lot of things. But uh, uh, this particular area, it doesn't seem to want to come in and have a lot of trees. It just keeps the grass. Yeah. And I don't think it's mowed. So, I mean, it's actually easier access to my neighbor, but I don't think he mows it. Yeah. So. Yeah, with time, you would, of... expect, you would expect some woody plants to, to take take hold in there. And it might just be site conditions, soil or moisture that uh, have it behind schedule with the other one for sure. Although Adam, I have to ask because uh, I also live on an acreage and we have planted some prairie, but also there were some unmowed parts that just got taken over by ragweed. And that's a whole new and different battle. So you do have to be aware, right? Yeah, that's I mean, it's sort of setting this like realistic expectation of what you can have the, you know, the best case, like if someone wanted to sort of foster a diverse ecological community in this quarter acre, they would uh, go in there and sort of assess what's growing there. I suspect those grasses are probably exotic species because that just tends to be what colonizes uh, places in Iowa, like smooth brome, reed canary grass, fescue, things like that. Um, I suspect that they're exotic species and we would go in hand to hand combat with herbicides and prescribed fire and maybe grazing. Uh, and we could through time favor the transition of that quarter acre to, um, a stand of like prairie, uh, with some really aggressive measures. But there is also just sort of this hands-off approach that can be effective, um, Charity, I would wonder the place where ragweeds prevail, ragweed is an early successional, meaning that, you know, it likes to come in and uh, take advantage of bare soil and things like that. Uh, And so disturbances tend to favor ragweed and through time, uh, and disturbance could be herbicide, it could be uh, disking, it could be flooding as well. Uh, And uh, through time, when those disturbances are taken away, generally, you know, more permanent plant communities come in. Uh, we'd expect first perennial, probably exotic grasses and forbs, and then eventually this transition to woody plants. And like I said, a lot of times the end game there is a stand of dense eastern red cedar. Um, and so uh, we want to just sort of watch it. And then depending on how much work you want to put into it, it could be, yeah, it could be quite diverse. You could go in and intercede with native grasses and forbs that we could buy from a, a native plant grower. Uh, you could plant trees or shrubs and you know do weed control and water them and uh, protect them from deer with cages and eventually have a good tree planting there's sort of lots of options and it depends on how much work you want to put in and what your goals are uh, at the end but i always sort of say like if it's not being mowed constantly 
it's going to be pretty good for wildlife in some way. Some species mm-hmm. of wildlife will certainly take advantage of it. Thanks a lot for the call, Greg. Let's go to Heidi in Johnston. Hi, Heidi. Hi. I have kind of a funny question. Um, so I put Christmas lights on some shrubs in my flower garden, and then I noticed that a lot of birds were coming in, roosting in the little evergreen shrub and then I started to feel guilty about turning on my Christmas lights because I was like how would I like it if I had lights on all night around my home so I was wondering would this bother the birds should I keep the lights off that is a great question Heidi what do you think Adam I do like the question Heidi and I like your concern I those birds will certainly find another place to roost I do think that probably the birds uh that were roosting in their shrubs would not like to have the lights on all night. Um, If you're in town, I wonder if the species of bird that you're seeing this time of year in dense flocks is like house sparrows or European starlings. That's sort of what we think of as like the um, abundant sort of urban roosting bird. Uh, And those, those populations of birds are doing well. Uh, And so I don't know that you'd be doing a lot of harm. So I would say, you could probably still continue to enjoy the lights for now. The birds will find a different place to roost. Um, but it is probably true also that they, they don't, um, they, they wouldn't necessarily be crazy about the lights. This could, this could broaden. We could, I don't want to take too much time, but broaden a conversation about lights in urban areas that actually really is consequential to birds that you've maybe heard about or read about during migration when cities really have a lot of light, especially light going straight up into the air. Uh, we know that that can cause a lot of sort of unnatural mortality in migratory birds. Christmas is not the time of year we worry about that. So I think Christmas lights are pretty benign for their impacts on birds because the migration is largely over. But if you've heard about city lights and birds, it is a real concern a few weeks a year, uh, especially with really bright, big city lights. And there's a lot of efforts to get people to literally shut the lights off for a few days uh, every year to help those birds migrate uh, across the continent. Well, you can come back and we can we can do another uh, show about that. Oh, that would Adam. be fun. That yeah, would be it's fa- a fascinating topic. That's a great idea. All right, let's uh, get back to the phones. Aaron, we've got a question for you this time, although it's it's kind of related to Adam. But Mike is on the line in Ankeny. Hi, Mike. Good morning. Hi. What's your question? Good morning. Um, in reference to Adam's uh, comment about the deer exercising their horns on our young, nice, healthy trees. My question would be, um, what do you do after they've done that if the tree looks like it could live? Sometimes the horns just leave a little mark, like a line. Other times they remove a lot of bark. And where's the dividing line between saving the tree and cutting it down and starting again? And does latex paint you know, put on that wound, uh, does that help? Yeah, this is a, this is a tough one because the, um, of course the damage is there because you move that bark, the active water and nutrient conducting tissue is right under the bark. So you're disrupting that movement from roots to shoots. And if it's all the way around the tree, tree is definitely a goner. If uh, often, if it's more than a third to a half, 
it's probably best to replace a tree. Usually, also, they're young, so you don't have quite as much time invested in it, and it's a little bit easier to try to start over, especially with a much healthier tree that you can then protect better. Um, if you have just minor damage, um, the hard part about this is you don't need to do anything. Um, in fact, the best thing to do is to just let the tree recover on its own. It's going to work to seal off that damaged area and then grow over it. Um, and any tars, paints, uh, sealants, any of that stuff um, does not help and in some cases can actually make it worse. So uh, the hard part about that is not doing anything, but that is the best thing to do. All right, Mike, thanks a lot for the call. That is a tough one a lot of us have to deal with. Uh, another I question. No, I have the same problem. <laughs> <laughs> Another question for you, Aaron. This one's from Karen. Can I divide my indoor cactus during the winter? You can do, um, you can divide or propagate indoor plants any time of the year. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about doing it more kind of late winter, early spring, because some plants do take a rest and, and don't do a lot of growth when the days are shorter. And that's certainly true. If you really wanted to do it now, you could do it and be successful. Um, if you wanted to do it at a time when the plant is going to respond more quickly and grow more quickly, um, kind of March, April, May would probably be a little bit better time to do it, but you can do it anytime. All right. And uh, here's a question from Lori. I have a gloxinia that has bloomed off and on for about six years. Should I fertilize it a bit after the dormant months? Some years it's very leggy and may not bloom. Yeah, they would appreciate a little bit of fertilizer, especially immediately following bloom and through that early kind of growth season um, after the blooming is finished. Um, half strength um, kind of general all-purpose fertilizer is fine. Or if you have it, an African violet uh, kind of formulated fertilizer works really well. Gloxinia is a very close relative to African violet. Let's go back to the phone. Susan is on the line in Fairfield. Hi, Susan. Hi. Hi, what's your question? I was wondering what to do. Uh, I was wondering what to do about uh, blackberries that are invading my prairie. Um, they just seem to be spreading and they n never really produce much. Uh, any suggestions? Are they black raspberries or are they blackberries? No, they're blackberries. Okay. Is where is the prairie, Susan? Is it in town or is it out of town? It's out of town. Okay. What we generally think of with woody plants invading prairies is that fire is the best tool, if that's at all a possibility. And a couple ways, you know, to put fire on the ground, you know, you could seek out help from a professional wildlife biologist, like with Pheasants Forever, Iowa DNR, or even the Natural Resources Conservation Service. Uh, and in some cases, rural fire departments are willing to help um, landowners, maybe with a donation to a volunteer fire department or something like that, and you could do a prescribed fire. Uh, oftentimes we do these out of the growing season, so either early in the spring or late in the fall. To control woody plants, these early spring ones can be uh, really good. And so, uh, you know, Iowa's prairie ecosystems, well, one, they do have a shrub component. So a little bit of shrubs is good. And uh, back to my all things in moderation uh, the second time I've said that today, and we always sort of emphasize that, but too many woody plants, of course, shifts that community away from prairie and into shrubland. Uh, and the way to combat that shift is through disturbance. And most of the time, uh, the best disturbance to control woody vegetation is fire, if that's possible. If it's not possible, um, 
haying or mowing uh, can at least set that woody vegetation back a little bit. Um, or if you have a neighbor with goats or any grazing animals, a little bit of grazing pressure in a fence, a little bit of grazing pressure can also help uh, keep a prairie a prairie and not transitioning into uh, more woody vegetation. Yeah, that fence is key there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to keep the goats in. All right, Susan, good luck with that. Another problem that a lot of people struggle with. Um, we have an email question. We planted some small flowering crab apple trees a couple of years ago. Are these native? Will birds eat the little apples? If not, should we consider replacing with something else? And, and what else would we plant? The birds will love the little apples. Um, most of the crab apples we grow in our landscapes are hybrids or selected cultivars of lots of different species. Many of them are Asian, um, but uh, not necessarily. So uh, they're not truly native. The birds still love them. Yeah, and this kind of brings us to a good point. I, I There's a small number of woody plants that are like on my cut it down list, um, unpopular opinion, but burning bushes like at the top of that list, it really actually does do harm to native ecosystems and adjoining uh, natural areas because birds take the seeds from the cities and plant them in the forests and then exotic burning bush, Japanese barberry, uh, honeysuckle, exotic honey species of honeysuckle uh, are all bad. Everything else, what I normally do on the native plant thing is don't take my, you know, celebrating native plant as a suggestion that you should go cut everything down and start over. What I always try to encourage people to do is instead at the nursery, choose native plants over exotic plants. So don't plant new species that are exotic. Favor native plants, especially native plants that are these good, back to what we talked about earlier, keystone species like oaks, members of the cherry family, uh, and willows that have a lot of... um, attract a lot of moths and butterflies, favor those in your landscape for new plantings. Into and as long the as you're old and plantings, Adam, we are aren't out of time. Harm. But Okay, great. <laughs> Adam Jakey, thank you so much for being here. Iowa State University Extension Wildlife Specialist, yes. Aaron Style. Also, thank you. ISU Extension Horticulture Specialist. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.